would you go to get what you want? USA Today bestselling author Hank Philippi Ryan breaks down the art of lying in her chilling psychological standalone, The First to Lie. It's a novel about an investigative reporter squaring off with a major pharmaceutical company. The First to Lie is a cat and mouse game, but which character is the cat and which character is the mouse? Hank Philippi Ryan spent decades as an investigative reporter for WHDH-TV in Boston, winning 34 Emmys for her work. She has combined her journalistic experience with her gift for storytelling into more than a dozen thrillers, winning her five Agathas, three Anthonys, the Daphne, and the Mary Higgins Clark Award. I write fast-paced, page-turning, compelling thrillers. I want you to miss your stop on the bus because you can't put it down. But underneath, I want you to see the world in a different way. Today, she shares with us how her search for the story is very much at the core of her writing process. There's no better place to lose yourself and find yourself than between the covers of a book. Hi, I'm Ann Bocock, and it's time to go between the covers. From mystery to adventure, from romance to history, I interview authors of all genres. Join me for in-depth conversations into their creative processes, their struggles, and of course, their successes. This episode was originally streamed live and includes viewer questions. Enjoy. I am so happy to welcome Hank Philippi Ryan to Between the Covers. How are you? I'm great. I'm sitting right here. Well, as great as anyone can be. I'm sitting right here in Boston at my desk where I write every day, a beautiful day outside with the gorgeous trees and the sun shining. So I'm very happy to be here, Anne. Thank you. It is so nice to see you. I want to get right into the book, The First to Lie. First of all, if you don't mind, I'm just going to quote a little something from the epigraph that reads, everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head, always, all the time. And that story makes you what you are. Could I get you to continue on and read what comes next? Thank you. The, well, the first to lie begins with a sort of not a prologue, but sort of just a little thought provoking element that I wrote to have you sort of think about what the book might be about. See it through, see the world through your own eyes a little bit. And here's how it starts. Without any sneaky fine print and knowing everything you know, if you could start your adult life over as someone else, would you do it? Say you could choose the person, where they live and what they do. You could choose what parts of your prior knowledge to retain and what parts to forget. Family baggage, discard it. Friends and lovers and commitments, erased along with your vanished past. Obsessions, obsessions could stay. How you look and how you sound, your goals and motivations and deepest desires, Whatever you want, you could do it, be it, love it, lose it. Sound good? I fibbed. There is one little bit of fine print. You. Every time you'd look in the mirror, you'd remember. Mirrors make such false promises. They tell you, look here and you'll see yourself. 
But that's the first lie. You see a face and a body, sure, but a mirror doesn't show your true self. That you have to find out on your own by looking inside, and no seductive piece of silvered glass can help you. Still, I know all it takes is a tweak here and a tweak there to become someone else. So would you do it to get what you always wanted? Sure you would. All you have to do is lie. All you have to do is lie. Let, first of all, I loved this book. There is so much misdirection. There are a lot of lies, a lot of liars writing this. First of all, it had to have been fun to write, but is there a challenge in trying to know who's telling what, who's telling the truth? I mean, it's it's complicated. Well, it's. Uh, thank you for that. I, I'm just sitting here soaking up your praise. Thank you very much. I'm so pleased you love the first to lie. And it was so much fun to write um, on the days that it wasn't terrifically difficult to write. So one or the other of those things. Um, but, you know, Lying is such an interesting thing. So these people in my books, um, just as you said in the epigraph and just as I offer in the beginning, it's sort of how far would you go to get what you want? So what I know at the beginning of the book is what each character wants and how far they'll go to get it. So is that lying um, or is it just motivation or is it just a decision-making process? You know, lying, and we can talk about this, this came from my going undercover as a reporter so many times. Lying is a decision we make. It's so situational, isn't it? Because um, if we're lying for the greater good, is that bad? And that's what I sort of been trying to explore in this. So yes, the characters are completely reliable though, aren't they? They absolutely tell you exactly what they want you to know um, and no more than that. Um, so yes, and it's interesting because as an author, I know what each character knows and I know the reality. So really, Anne, the difficult part was remembering to keep myself out of it, to remember that I'm only in one person's head at a time. There are four points of view, only in one person's head at, the at a time. And, and that's cool because it lets the readers know more than each character knows because the reader knows everything and the characters only know their own little bits and that dramatic irony that ability for a character to make a mistake but the reader says oh no that's wrong oh no that's not what she means oh no that's not what she's trying to do be careful don't go down there don't re don't respond that way that dramatic irony i think is one of the things that makes a good thriller such a page turner it makes you know i write cat and mouse games the first to lie is a cat and mouse game but which character is the cat and which character is the mouse Ellie, who is one of the main characters, is an investigative reporter, which you know a little bit about since you've won 37 Emmys. Um, Ellie goes undercover. She's in disguise. She is visiting doctor's offices. Now, did you, have you ever done the, the full undercover disguise in, in your other career? Oh, absolutely. And this is that's sort of the genesis of where this book came from. My books are not my investigative stories turned into fiction, not at all. But my books are sort of an amalgam of experiences and understanding and um, things that I've 
seen and thought and experienced and stressed out over and been responsible for and attempted. Um, and yes, I have gone undercover and in disguise. I've wired myself with hidden cameras and confronted corrupt politicians and chased down criminals. I did that in a series of stories that we worked on here in Boston about whether um, doctors would reveal honestly their legal history, their history of malpractice losses. And very, very quickly, the story began when I tried to find out the history of a certain doctor's malpractice losses in Massachusetts and found out that was not public record, um, easily public record. You would have to go to each individual doctor's county and courthouse and find out whether there had been any cases filed. And then even then, it was very difficult, just a morass, uh, a molasses of looking into something. So I went to the Board of Registration and Medicine very quickly and asked the uh, director, um, how is a potential patient supposed to know if their doctor has a history of malpractice losses? Now, I know malpractice is just sort of the cost of doing business for many doctors, it doesn't mean they're bad. It just means it's a situational thing that sometimes happens. So I'm not being judgmental about that. I just think it's all about disclosure. And the, the head of the Board of Registration and Medicine said to me, well, a patient, a pot potential patient should simply ask the doctor if they've had medical malpractice losses and the doctor will tell them. And I thought, oh, really? no, they won't. No. So um, my producer and I disguised ourselves as a couple who wanted to get pregnant. Um, and I had my hair up in a bun and no makeup and glasses that you would not recognize me. Um, and three sweatshirts and a work shirt. And my producer, Chris, a man, dressed up as my husband. He didn't have to do much to pretend to be my husband. Um, and we went into this doctor's office. And in the buttonhole of my shirt was not a button, but the lens of a camera. And behind that lens was a wire snaking down through my sweatshirts and out the back where I was wearing a fanny pack with a hidden camera in it. And we went in. I know. Can you imagine? You got to picture that. I was, I was terrified. I mean, there is it is not illegal to carry a hidden camera in Massachusetts. You can't tape someone's audio without their permission, but you can tape their video. So I wasn't doing anything wrong or illegal, but. It's very stressful because if that I didn't say to that doctor, hi, I'm Hank Philippi Ryan from Channel 7. I'm here to find out if you'll tell me the truth. I went in pretending to be someone else, and there and therein lies the key. And fast forward, he lied up one side and down the other, completely lied about his you know, massive history of malpractice losses. Um huge amounts of money and repeatedly so, um, and completely lied about it. And I was so unnerved by that. As a result of our story, by the way, um, the rules were changed in Massachusetts to require doctors' malpractice histories to be easily available in their records in the Board of Registration and Medicine. So the, law, the life, lives of people changed as a result of that story. I was lying. I mean, he was lying, and it was bad. He was lying to lure me into getting him to be my doctor. He was luring in me into becoming a patient and paying him. Um, and he was telling, not telling me the truth about his history. But I wasn't telling him the truth either. If you are enjoying the show so far, make sure to subscribe. We post new episodes every Monday. And don't forget to leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Now, back to the show. 
something else that that from the the reporter side in your story you have Ellie who is the the reporter she and a fellow reporter have a conflict and it has to do with ethics and what's fair what's legal from a journalistic standpoint i found that very interesting because this is real and i am sure that this is in newsrooms all day long you want the story especially now when there is 24 hour coverage stories can get on the air extremely fast without it being vetted well, you know, in an investigative story, and I have done investigative stories for the past 43 years in television, which is so crazy to think about. But one of the things I love about writing books that include reporters and include journalism is that I can kind of come out from undercover as a real person. You know, when you see my stories on television, you don't you don't realize from just seeing that little three minute story that lawyers have looked at this, management has looked at this, you know, three editors have looked at it. We have cross-referenced and researched and followed up and, you know, confirmed sources and all, you know, this all goes into that. You also don't know if I'm afraid when I put the story on TV, whether I think it's a good story. You don't know what I left out. You don't know how much information you'll never know because I didn't have time to put that in. Uh, you'll never know whether I was unhappy with the result that went on the air, all those kinds of emotional things. You don't know because what you see on TV is this perfectly vetted, pristine, gorgeous investigative story. But as a, as a, as a fiction author, I can reveal to readers what it's really like to take a high, to get a high stakes, um, life-changing, multi-million billion dollar story on the air, something that could ruin a, a company and ruin lives. What does it take to put that on the air? And when are you doing more harm than good? And all those kinds of things from legal to moral to ethical to the calculus of, you know, is it okay if a drug helps so many people, but then harms just a few? Do you tell them that or not? So all that kind of ethical, moral, legal, medical balance. I mean, I write fast-paced, page-turning, compelling thrillers. I want you to miss your stop on the bus because you can't put it down. But I, underneath, I want you to see the world in a different way. I want you to understand our lives and our responsibilities um, and our decision-making process in a different way. And I want to empower you, um, all of us, to stand up for ourselves in medical situations and in pharmaceutical situations, all those kinds of things that matter so much to our lives. So be, writing fiction, I can come out from undercover and show you more than I can as a journalist. A couple of things that, and we will just touch on this because we never spoil anything, but I do wanna to get to a couple of things that you just said. And one, reading the book, and you did, to me, come at this as a journalist because you, I believe you want the reader to determine what is possibly right or wrong or what they're comfortable with, but two things. One was that I sense that the women in this did not have, the women in the doctor's offices, the ones who were being treated, didn't have that power, couldn't voice that power that, that uh, perhaps they needed. And the other was the pharmaceutical companies 
There is a questionable drug. I'm, I'm not giving really anything away here. What are you comfortable elaborating on with those two things? Yeah, isn't that interesting, Anne? Because I write thrillers and then I realize that I've written a book that I can't discuss. You know, so so much for that. Um, there's a funny thing on Twitter that said, discuss, tell about your book in four words. And so I thought, okay, maybe that's the way to do it. So the words I chose for the first to lie were betrayal, motherhood, obsession, and revenge. And that's what the first to lie is, betrayal, motherhood, obsession, and revenge. You know, it's um, a devastating childhood betrayal, an undercover reporter who's in too deep, a beautiful sailboat on the Chesapeake Bay, a rich and powerful family that runs a pharmaceutical company, and an ice pick that is not used for ice. So really, the first to lie is this cat and mouse thriller about two women, as you say, facing off to get their revenge for a devastating childhood betrayal. But when you examine uh, something big like the pharmaceutical industry, that's a little bit off-putting. But what makes what makes the stories interesting, what makes my stories fascinating and, and relatable and understandable and compelling is that they're about the people involved. And that's why I chose to have the essence of this book be about family, about having a family, about wanting a family. What if someone promised you a family and then pulled that rug out from under you? What if your own family betrayed you uh, when you were younger? What would you do? How would that um, sorrow fester and grow and what would that turn into? I also wondered, you know, in thinking about those big pharmaceutical companies and all the problems that so many of the drugs have engendered. And, you know, I don't want to make a big statement about this because so many wonderful drugs come out of the of pharmaceutical companies, life-saving, fabulous, good. But um, I, I just wanted people to understand um, what power those drugs have over people and how we have to do our best to know what we're what we're doing. So what if in one of those families, a member of that family knew something terrifying about the drugs her family was manufacturing? Would she or he tell that um, and potentially ruin their family and, the, and the, all this money of this big corporation, this big industry, all the people's jobs and everything that went into it and all the people who were helped um, if some people were very harmed. You know, what is, you know, what is the ethical, moral family loyalty? So my book is about family loyalty and family betrayal and how sometimes people say, I was just doing what I thought was best for you. And maybe it wasn't. So, so, so my book I, is very personal. It is very, very, and you know what? I'm actually, quite surprised that you gave us this much of a look into it. So kudos to you. That's excellent. You write thrillers, but there's not really graphic. There's not th this, this violence. To me, as a reader, I find psychological manipulation is even more disturbing to read. Is that how you, you approach it? Oh, and I, I, I so agree with you. You know, it's interesting. Someone a long time ago said, told me to write the kind of book you love to read. So 
And if you love, if you write the kind of book you love to read, then that passion comes through on the page. The reader will feel that. The reader will love the book as much as you do because it just sort of oozes into the pages. You know, I don't know what's coming next in my books. Like we can talk about that if you want. So that's what gets me to the computer every day is sort of, I wonder what's going to happen next. And I don't know what will happen until I write the next sentence and the next paragraph and the next scene. It's a surprise. So when I when I read a book, the kind of book I like to read, um, it, I don't like graphic sex in books. I don't like graphic violence in books. I mean, why? I don't like inappropriate language in books. I just I just don't think it's necessary. I don't. I mean, I don't mean to be all prissy about it, but when it's necessary, fine. But just you know, I won the Mary Higgins Clark Award and have been nominated several times. And you know, her whole aura was how I mean. Her books are suspenseful and scary and, you know, don't read them with the lights off. I mean, I guess you couldn't. But that's what I want to convey is this sometimes, and I agree with you, often what we do to each other, gaslighting and mind games and manipulation, you know, that is much more powerful and just as scary as a gun or a knife. How we use and manipulate and deceive each other to get what we want. That sort of selfish, self-centered, focused gaslighting can really ruin someone's life. Um, and I think that, I so agree with you, Anne, is just as devastatingly terrifying, you know, as anybody banging on the door and stomping into your into your house. I mean, we all know people who say things like, oh, well, you know, if, if that's the kind of thing you want to do or, you know, oh, that's not what I heard, but I don't want to tell you that, you know, that kind of manipulation um, is really, really upsetting and disturbing. So I'm really going for upsetting and disturbing. Something you just said actually surprised me. You said you don't know what's going to happen in this particular book. How did you not know the ending before you put pen to paper? And my my vision of where you write is like giant whiteboards with arrows and strings and, and who did what. But you're telling me it evolves. There's not a day that goes by that I don't wish for whiteboards and string. You know, I wish I could think that way. But somehow my brain doesn't work that way at all. And I and I think it's because um, after all these years as a reporter, when I'm out searching for a story, I don't know what the result of that story is, right? Because if I did, it wouldn't be a story. I'm looking for something new. I'm looking for something I don't know. I'm looking to discover the answer to a secret or the answer to a question or, or, or dig up something that no one knows. And so I think that's why I'm comfortable having no idea what's going to happen in the end or even in the, in the beginning or even in the middle of my books. I, I, I think of that little nugget of a beginning, you know, what, what, how far would you go to get what you wanted? Just what I started reading at the beginning, what if being someone else could get you what you want? And then I thought, okay, let's see what happens. And I type chapter one. And I think, okay, 99,998 words to go. So I had no idea. I mean, you're talking about the end. I had no idea what happened in the middle. And those who read the book will understand what I'm saying. I didn't know what happened after that or after that or after that. So I'm typing along. I'm sitting, you know, as I said, I go to my computer to see what happens next. And I'm typing along and I think, oh, 
that's what happened. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Okay, that's good. All right, then I'll just keep going. That's a surprise. And so one of my favorite things is I get emails from readers who say they read the first to lie and then they loved it and they but they went right back to the beginning and read it again to see how I did it. And that's my joy because I think, you know, talk, they say, wow, what a twist, what a surprise in the end too. And I say, yeah, you know, talk about a surprise twist. I surprise myself every time, you know, talk about a surprise twist. I was surprised. And I, and, you know, honestly, that's one of the joys of writing. That's one of the things that um, keeps me going is that Sue Grafton used to call it the magic, the magic of our imagination that something unfolds in our writer brains that, you know, one second ago, we didn't know. I mean, an idea, you think about an idea, how, how incredible that is, that there's a thing that at one point we didn't know, and then we do, and how does that happen? And the story proceeds. So in my fiction writing, just like in my journalism, I'm out searching for the story. And that's what I do every day at my computer. I'm out searching for the story. And that's what I did in The First to Lie. I was searching to see what happened to Ellie and Nora and Meg and Brooke. You know, I'm, I'm seeing what happened. And it's just as interesting and just as surprising to me as it is to the reader. So when you say, do you have fun writing? I say, yeah, it's really fun because I'm telling myself a story that I don't know the answer to. Now I can say parenthetically that since I write mystery thrillers, sometimes in writing, it feels like, oh no, I don't know what happened. You know, I, I've set up this mystery for me to solve and now I can't solve it. But you know, Thomas Edison had a, a great quote who and he said, supposedly said, when you think you have exhausted all of the possibilities, remember this, you haven't. And so when I don't know what happens next, I just think, well, okay, I'll think of it soon. Um, and so far, that has worked. Oh, this I, I'm still surprised that you didn't know the ending or the beginning or the middle, because it is such an fun, wonderful psychological thriller. Hank, you may need to make a little more room on that shelf, because what I read, and I'm quoting from Publishers Weekly, Hank Philippi Ryan could win a sixth Agatha with this one. The book is The First to Lie. Hank, I want to thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been so much fun. My complete pleasure. I'm Ann Bocock, and thank you for listening to Go Between the Covers, produced by South Florida PBS. To stay connected with us and our guests, check out our show notes or visit us at southfloridapbs.org slash gobtc. Next Monday, I'm interviewing Alice Hoffman, author of Magic Lessons, the prequel to Practical Magic. The story is about Maria Owens, the matriarch of the amazing Owens women accused of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts. Don't miss it.